A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. As you've likely heard, there have been some incredible moves around ocean conservation recently, culminating in a new but complex treaty. And that is where we'll spend our time today. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back to the show, and I have to tell you, I am so excited, not only for today, but also for what's soon to be coming along with the next several shows. The South of Two Degrees team has been hard at work on a bunch of projects, from a complete website revamp based on feedback from you to make accessing the scientific research you want easier, and a relaunch of the blog along with the potential for a newsletter, let us know if you want that, to some incredible interviews in the pipeline. Well, let me just say, I truly believe we are working to make ourselves better for you every day. So who are these interviews that will be coming later this spring? Well, I'm not going to give anything away, but one is with one of the world's foremost glaciologists and science communicators, and another is a media name we all know that has been reporting on climate change well before most people outside the scientific community gave it any thought. Sprinkle in some episodes on the latest research, as well as a full breakdown of the IPCC AR6 synthesis report, and it just makes me smile. Now, before we begin today, a quick shout out to a few of our new listeners in Seoul, South Korea, Billings, Montana, and New Ulm, Germany. We appreciate you and hope you feel more empowered to go out and have the conversations we so desperately need to have. Okay, now all over the news the last several weeks has been a buzz around a specific new UN treaty on the high seas. From a technical perspective, it's called an agreement under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea on the Conservation and Sustainable Use of Marine Biological Diversity of Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction. Okay, in less fancy language and in the policy world, it's simply referred to as Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction, or BBNJ. To the press and everyone else, it's simply called the High Seas Treaty. Now to start, let's back off a bit and make sure we all understand what we mean by the high seas. As a longtime blue water sailor, this is the area of the planet that just speaks directly to my soul. To the landlubber, oh, wait, I'm sorry, does anyone actually use that term? See, this is what happens when I riff on a subject. Sometimes things just come out and seriously, you should stop laughing like you've never been there. Okay, maybe I should script this, uh, but today you just get me on a total stream of consciousness. Anyway, what I meant to say is to those of you that haven't ventured into the ocean beyond where you can still see the shore, the high seas is an area beyond any one country's jurisdiction. You see... We're good at recognizing the lines we draw on land to delineate between sovereign nations, but where is that in the water? Well, in the simplest terms, think about it like this. 
Imagine a five-year-old drew you an overhead picture of a beach with four different crayon colors of blue. And I say crayons because anyone who has ever watched a five-year-old knows you don't give them markers. Ever. I mean, ever. Anyway, you have this nice picture of a light brown beach touching the first color of blue. This blue stripe follows the shore and extends 12 nautical miles from the coast. This is referred to as territorial waters. Now, a nation has complete rights over this space in the air, on the water, and extending down through the seafloor. The second blue band extends out another 12 nautical miles, usually, and is referred to as the contiguous zone, and it's where a state party has limited rights to exert dominion over. Now, your third blue stripe continues from 24 nautical miles to 200 nautical miles. This band, in conjunction with the former two, make up a country's economic exclusion zone, or EEZ. It is from the shore to the edge of this band that coastal countries have exclusive rights to all economic resources. But it's the fourth crayon stripe of blue on our five-year-old's picture that concerns us today. Beginning at the 200 nautical mile mark is where the high seas begin. To put this in perspective, the high seas encompass 64% of the world's oceans, or looked at another way, just a mere 40% of the surface of our planet. Now, I can just hear Dr. Sylvia Earle yelling at me, Brian, look down! And she's right. To someone who has never been out there, the surface of the high seas can look like a lifeless blue desert. But underneath it, it's teeming with the full richness of life. In short, the high seas are a massive area that no one nation has rights over. And as the world looks to implement a 30 by 30 plan, thank you COP15, it is imperative that we discuss how to protect the rich biodiversity that calls the high seas home. Enter the new high seas treaty. Now the first question you may be asking yourself is, Brian, this can't be the first time humanity has looked at the high seas, is it? And that's a great question, and the answer is, no, it isn't. To get there, we need a quick history lesson. So back in 1609, a Dutch philosopher by the name of Hugo Grotius first proposed Mare Liberum, or freedom of the seas. Now, to be fair, this is the European history, as is most of what the English-speaking world is taught. In Asia, this concept extended well before old Hugo. Now, the funny bit is during this period, the rights of a nation only extended about three miles from shore, what was referred to as the cannon shot rule. And I have to say, as someone looking back on history, this absolutely cracks me up. I mean, seriously, only humans would say my rights extend as far as I can blow something up. All right. Now, fast forward to World War I and U.S. President Woodrow Wilson said in his 14 points to Congress, Quote, absolute freedom of navigation upon the seas outside territorial waters, alike in peace and in war, except as the seas may be closed in whole or in part by international action for the enforcement of international covenants, end quote. Now, the League of Nations called a convention on the subject in 1930, but no agreement was reached. Then in 1945, U.S. President Harry Truman claimed the resources exclusive to the U.S. extended out to America's continental shelf. 
this started a water grab and a lot of countries followed suit, notably Peru and Chile, who both extended their nation's waters 200 nautical miles offshore in order to cover the fishing grounds in the Humboldt Current. Now, by 1967, eight countries had set a 200 nautical mile claim, 66 had extended to 12 nautical miles, and only 25 continued to use the three nautical mile standard. In 1958, however, the UN held its first conference on the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS. This resulted in four treaties that I won't dig into today to save you from boredom, save to say the third one was the Convention on the High Seas. Now, this was superseded by UNCLOS 3 in 1982, which didn't come into force until 1994, which also introduced economic exclusion zones, among other things. Now, Part 11 of that treaty established the International Seabed Authority, which was to oversee mining rights and operations as well as the distribution of royalties. Because of this, the United States, of course, refused to ratify it, despite the fact 167 other countries have. Now, fast forward once again, this time nearly 30 years to present day, and we finally have an agreement as an international community on wording to cover gaps left in the UNCLOS 3, as well as the now recognized by the industrial world need to protect the world's biodiversity. I say industrialized because indigenous peoples have long known the need for and practiced ocean and biodiversity conservation. We're just kind of catching up. Now, it was on March 4th that BBNJ President Rena Lee announced, quote, the ship has reached the shore upon the late night final agreement. And this is where the details really begin. But before I run through the juicy details, a quick aside. I have to say what made me laugh is the number of news agencies and individuals that heralded the new agreement before ever reading it. How do I know that? Well, the text was not released for two days after it was made, and that is why almost everyone's reporting repeated the same thing. As someone that spends every day examining language and science papers, this really annoyed me, to say the very least. If you're going to speak around me, you damn well better have citable sources as well as your facts straight. It's a pet peeve, I know, but all the same, that's just who I am. Okay, on to the treaty. As we dive in, we need to clarify a few items. First, what was agreed upon was the language. The agreement itself will not enter force until 60 parties or signatory bodies of the UN sign it. Now, this could take years. I wish I could tell you differently as we are not at a moment in history where we can move slowly on these matters. But in reality, it may be a few years before the High Seas Treaty actually enters into force. Now, for perspective, the Paris Accord took 11 months to enter into force. The Montreal Protocol took two years from 1987 to 1989, and the Kyoto Protocol took seven years and three months from 1997 to 2005. To make this easier, I'm going to break this into five parts. It's purpose, principles, institutional arrangements, benefit sharing, and conservation measures. So let's start with its purpose. The stated objective of the BBNJ is, quote, to ensure the conservation and sustainable use of marine biological diversity of the areas beyond national jurisdiction for the present and in the long term through effective implementation of the relevant provisions of the convention and further international cooperation 
and coordination, end quote. In other words, there is a global recognition that these areas are vulnerable to human activities and in the face of anthropogenic climate change, and as such, urgent action to protect them is absolutely needed. Further, the agreement, as mentioned previously, seeks to fill the gaps in current international legal frameworks for the management of marine biodiversity. Now, as for principles, there are three guiding ones in the agreement that are paramount and in my mind should be applied in nearly every situation. They are the precautionary approach, the ecosystem approach, and the principle of humankind's common heritage. Now, let's touch on each briefly. The precautionary approach, or more commonly referred to in the scientific world as the precautionary principle, is a guideline in environmental decision-making that involves four points. Namely, one, taking preventative action in the face of uncertainty. Two, shifting the burden of proof to the proponents of an activity. Three, exploring a wide range of alternatives to possibly harmful actions. And four, increasing public participation in decision-making. Now, why is the precautionary principle used both in the scientific realm as well as here in the New Ocean Treaty? To quote a wonderful paper on this, quote, It is important to clearly distinguish between the development of scientific information about an issue and the setting of policy. But in practice, there is not always an unambiguous demarcation. Policymakers set agendas that determine the questions asked of scientists. Scientists formulate hypotheses in ways limited by their tools and their imaginations. Thus, the information they provide to the policymakers is limited and, to a degree, socially determined. End quote. All that to say, one should essentially approach issues thoughtfully and do no harm. Now, after the precautionary approach, the second one highlighted in the BBNJ is the ecosystem approach. This takes into account both the complexity and the interconnectivity of marine ecosystems. Think of this as applying a systems approach to both high seas biomes and biological diversity to manage them in an integrated and holistic manner. Finally, the third principle of the BBNJ is wonderful to see, and that is the principle of humankind's common heritage. Now, before someone decides to beat me up over saying we all have a common heritage, let me explain what the treaty means by this. It is the idea that the ocean, its biodiversity, and all of its resources are a shared global asset that should be managed for the benefit of all. Okay, I need you to stick with me here, as while this next bit is somewhat tedious, it's critically important to know and understand. Under the agreement, a new conference of parties is created. So if you're already confused between COP26 and COP15, be prepared for COP1 to enter the picture soon. Along with that, a secretariat will be selected to lead it. Within this COP, there are new institutional arrangements, specifically four new bodies are created and two new mechanisms, and we'll run through each briefly. I said briefly, so don't hit the skip forward button, and I don't need you falling asleep at the wheel. Now, the first and most significant is the scientific and technical body. This group will provide scientific advice to decision makers on both the sustainable use of marine resources, including oversight of environmental impact studies, as well as the conservation of marine biodiversity. The second is an implementation and compliance body, and as 
well, exactly what it sounds like and doesn't need further explanation. The third body is the Capacity Building and Transfer of Marine Technology Committee. This is a big one that is laid out in extensive detail in the BB&J, taking up the entirety of Part 5 of the agreement with Articles 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, and 47, all addressing this topic. Oh, stop groaning, I said I'd be brief. So in short, it's their job to help all countries, especially developing and landlocked states, develop and share marine technology and assist in building scientific research capability across all parties to the agreement. See, that wasn't so bad. The fourth and final body is the Access and Benefit Sharing Committee. This is one of the more important aspects yet as one of the two points in the BB&J that makes me the most concerned. You see, this committee is made up of 15 individuals, is charged with making sure the monetary benefits of both marine genetic resources and digital sequence information is shared along with determining the appropriate rates and mechanisms for doing so. Now, if there's one thing life has taught me, it's that money can make the closest of allies turn on each other. And I truly hope, truly hope this body is able to conduct itself such that this whole agreement doesn't fall apart. Finally, I said there were two mechanisms created as well. The first is the financial mechanism for funding this whole operation. Now, this should be cut and dry, but as nearly every environmental fund where rich countries are supposed to support developing ones is underserved, well, let's just say I hold hope that this one will operate at equitable levels. The second mechanism is one of my favorite parts of the agreement, and that is the development of a clearinghouse mechanism. Now, the reason I like this is because it echoes the fundamentals at my very core. You see, part of the birth of South of Two Degrees came from the idea that you shouldn't have to pay to access scientific information on climate change and biodiversity loss. So many papers are hidden behind paywalls that we created this podcast specifically to help disseminate that information as access to this critical information we need to act on should not be limited to only those who can pay. Now, the clearinghouse mechanism of the BB&J does just this. All, and I repeat, all information from the meeting transcripts to conservation efforts to operations extracting marine resources, along with their updates and environmental assessments, will be publicly available. Just as we believe at South of Two Degrees in open access, so does the committee that laid out the new High Seas Treaty that information should be accessible and free, period. Quick aside on the information sharing, while set up to be free, there is a wonderful caveat with regards to traditional and indigenous knowledge in that it shall only be accessible with prior and informed consent. While this information may be made available under the clearinghouse mechanism, it will only be done so on mutually agreed upon terms with the appropriate indigenous peoples and communities. This prevents cultural appropriation in a way such that the traditional knowledge can be used, quoted, and applied, knowing that the traditional holders of this knowledge have agreed to share it publicly. Now, the fourth part of this treaty focuses on benefit sharing, which we have touched on just a minute ago under the new committees. But the idea of benefit sharing is so entrenched in this agreement, it just makes me smile. 
Essentially, the BB&J recognizes the challenges developing countries face and circles back to the third of its core principles in that the ocean is a shared global asset to be used respectfully. In fact, the treaty goes to great lengths to highlight in particular the least developed countries, landlocked developing countries, geographically disadvantaged states, small island developing states, coastal African states, archipelagic states, and developing middle-income countries squarely putting climate justice at this agreement's core. Now, the fifth part of the New High Seas Treaty is what most of the environmental world celebrated, and why I saved it for last. This part covers conservation measures, and there are three main points under the conservation subject in the BB&J, and the first is by far the best of the whole agreement, at least in my opinion. In part three, Article 14C, it lays out the reason behind the establishment on new marine protected areas as, quote, protect, preserve, restore, and maintain biodiversity and ecosystems, including with a view to enhancing their productivity and health and strengthen resilience to stressors, including those related to climate change, ocean acidification, and marine pollution, end quote. Now, as someone who spent the better part of my life on or working within and fighting to protect the marine environment, if this part were the only thing that made up the treaty, I'd still be happy. However, the establishment of marine protected areas, or MPAs, isn't the only subject under conservation. Area-based measures and management tools are given a prime focus to manage human activities in a way such that they minimize impact on marine biodiversity. These go beyond just regulations and open up the development of both zoning and spatial planning as well. The last bit under conservation we touched on under the committees earlier as well, and that is the development and heavy use of scientifically peer-reviewed environmental impact studies. I don't think I need to say more here, save for they will be the core of guidance in how to proceed with any human activity. Now, I know I do my best to keep my opinion out of this podcast, but the question I get asked all the time when I go and speak somewhere is, well, what do you think, Brian? So I'll break with the norm and mention some highlights and pitfalls before we wrap up today. As for the bad bets, I see three that stick out that I'll hit on real quickly, and I'm sure as we move towards implementation, they will be better addressed, but for now, this is where the treaty can crack. One, under the agreement, parties are allowed to self-monitor and assess activities. Two, no new legal teeth exist within the agreement and it's left up to current laws. And three, the potential for violation without any real repercussions exists. Okay, now the best bits. One, climate justice is at the agreement's core. The international agreement that MPAs on the high seas should not only exist, but thrive and be shared by all. Two, transparency rules the day. Yes, you, as an average citizen of the world, can, under the agreement, ask permission to attend future meetings as an observer. And three, well, this is the icing on the cake in my mind. In Article 20, Section 6, it states that just because a party refuses to sign the agreement does not, I repeat, does not, discharge it from the obligation to cooperate in accordance with it. Yep, you heard me. If a country decides it doesn't want to be a signatory of the agreement, that's cool. 
but it still has to abide by it out of deference to the countries that do. This means MPAs will be enforceable no matter if you sign it or not. And on that great note, that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. Just a reminder to check out the new website over at southoftwodegrees.org. And if you want to see anything specifically there, be sure to shoot us a note. Also, if you have a moment, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform as this helps more people find the show and broadens the conversation. Now, aside from checking out the latest information on the website, blog, meta, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.